following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Father, you are good, and there's nothing good in us. Thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for being greater than our sin. Thank you for grace and mercy that we find in Jesus. We just thank you for the forgiveness, the hope of salvation, eternal life that we find in him, in your son. Thank you for taking our place. Thank you for taking what was ours and dying the death that we deserve. Thank you for justifying us redeeming us, binding us back to yourself. Thank you for the adoption that we now experience in Jesus so that we can cry out to you as our Father. So Lord, what a privilege it is to gather this morning as your children, as daughters and sons of the King. And Lord, as we open your word, as we communicate truth, I pray that each and every one of us in this room today that we would leave this place renewed, recommitted to the work that you have called us to, that, Lord, we would reorient our lives to your kingdom plans and your kingdom agenda. To help us to do that, not in our own strength, not in our own power, but might we do that in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' Spirit that you give to us as we walk in him, live life, abundant life, as you've given it to us today. So thank you today for this celebration that we can remember you as our true father, you as the good father who gives us all good things and withholds nothing. Thank you for that. Thank you for those in this room that have been a father to me and to my family. Thank you for those that experiencing great difficulty, as Jordan discussed earlier. Those that have walked a road that they have not experienced the good earthly father, but those that have buried their earthly father. Lord, I pray that you would be near to us, that you would cover us with your arms of kindness, and that we would feel the warm embrace of our father who loves us, who cares for us, who brought us into this world for your glory and for your name's sake. We ask that you would go before us this morning in Jesus' name. This morning's text is going to be in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to look together through Matthew chapter 5 uh, all the way through chapter 7. Very familiar passage of Scripture to many. Uh, most of you know these as the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' instructions to his followers to his disciples, and he lays out some very uh, essential, basic, foundational groundwork for what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus. Even more so than that, he goes back to foundational elements of what it means to be a child of God, to call God your father, and everything that that entails. So let's get right into it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. 
Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled under the people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in. In Matthew chapter 5, verse through 7, a major component, a constant theme that is reiterated by the writer, is that life in God's kingdom, life living here on this earth in God's kingdom under the reign and rule of Jesus is all that matters. In this particular section, he discusses the heavenly father's relationship with his children and how they would conduct themselves in kingdom living. Conversely, those who do not listen and those that do not live in the manner that we find in these few chapters do not have the privilege of calling God Father. So from the outset, we must understand that redemption by the Father and his adoption of sinners, of us, to be called daughters and sons, requires a proper response a proper response to that redemption. Jesus, Jesus doesn't care, okay? Jesus doesn't care that you know a lot about him. Jesus doesn't care that you go to church. Jesus doesn't care that you know a lot about the Bible or you're strong in your Christian faith. Jesus doesn't care about all these external things that we create. Jesus cares about your heart. He cares about your life. He cares that from the inside out, you see transformation that changes the way that you do. And so we see this. We see this in scripture all the time. We see this with the the religious people of Jesus' day. And I think we see it in contemporary America, evangelical church in America today. We're caught up in so many other things other than what Jesus wants. The life of living under the reign and rule in God's kingdom. And so we must come back to this. This is a call to come back to this. If there's no change in our lifestyle, if there's no response to God's redemptive work in our daily interactions, then everything else doesn't matter. Everything else doesn't matter. 
You see, the radical nature of grace is the basis for our radical discipleship. The radical nature of God's grace to sinners is what creates a discipleship that is so incredibly radical as we see his ways and learn to walk in them. So the more that we experience grace, grace from a father who is kind, grace from the father who is good, grace from the father who is very patient, so too, so too should our lives change, be transformed by God's spirit. Too often, I'm afraid, Christians today are like the kid who sits on the bench in the Grand Canyon. But that kid has got his head stuck in a geography book about the Grand Canyon. Missing out on all of the glory, all of the splendor, all of the amazing views and display of the beauty of this created order, and yet he's content to purely read about it. I'm afraid that too many Christians today are like the guy on his wedding night, sifting through all sorts of love letters, poetic romance, looking through pictures, and not experiencing the fulfillment of marital covenant. We laugh about that. That's kind of humorous. It's maybe like, oh, but that's in essence how we treat God as Christians, is it not? We're more content with the externals, and we miss that it's about the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is this other thing that we talk about. Jesus is this other thing that we teach about. This, Jesus is this, other, but Jesus is not this personal, real, transformational person. And so Matthew 5 through 7 calls us back to this, that life as children of God is experienced and enjoyed and ultimately satisfied in Jesus. And so I understand that there are difficulties. Jordan alluded to them this morning. Difficulties on a day like today and difficulties in viewing God as a loving and kind father. Some of us do not know our biological father. I am in that camp. Some of us don't have, have had fathers that haven't given a rip about us. Some of us have had extreme hurts Maybe some of us in this room have been abused verbally, physically, sexually by your father. And you can't get past the fact that God somehow is a better father. I get that. Some of us, though, may be on the other end of the spectrum. We've had an amazing earthly father. I've had the, the privilege of having a very godly, an amazing godly uh, uh, earthly father who's who's given me so much and I've experienced and tasted what earthly fatherhood is like in just a microcosm. Some of us place too much emphasis on our earthly families and we don't, our 
figureheads, our father figureheads, mother, do not directly point us to the giver of all good things. And so there's a balance. There's a balance. Our fathers, me as a father now, I'm supposed to demonstrate to my children in a reflective manner what God is like to me. And when I do that, I distort that picture. When I fail to do that, I distort that picture. And so I understand there's difficulties fraught with this understanding, but I hope that we can come to the scriptures, examine the text, and allow the spirit to transform us to truth today. John 17, that you would sanctify them by your truth. So fatherhood in the first century, if you understand, was where one's life and well-being stem from, okay? Very patriarchal society in the first century Judaism as Matthew's culture as he's writing. Uh, Women and children were powerless, fully dependent upon their father of their families to provide, protect, and care for them. And so you see Jesus instructs his followers to depend upon their heavenly father who cares for them and knows their every need. And we're going to see this in his model of prayer in chapter 6. So throughout Matthew 5 through 7, I, what I don't want happen today is I don't want you to get bogged down in all, all the details, okay? I don't want you to get bogged down in, uh, you just come away feeling like there's a ton of do's and don'ts. And how many of you know people that they, that's all they think the Christian life is about what you can and cannot do? It's reductionism and it's false, it's wrong, it's a misunderstanding of what the gospel is. It's not about what you do and don't do. Okay? But if you have been truly transformed and truly changed from the inside out, what you do ultimately demonstrates what's going on inside. All right? So throughout this passage, let's not get bogged down. Let's not miss the point. For Jesus, it was all about if one really believes him, then his presence and his spirit will transform you to operate on a on a different level, on a countercultural, counterintuitive level compared to the world. So Jesus' kingdom ethic cuts through all the religiosity, all the church stuff, the churchianity that we find, and it gets right to the heart of the issue. It gets to the core, your heart, things that really matter. And so we see this in the scriptures. The blessed portion of this passage, Sermon on the Mount. Notice that all of these ideas, all of these concepts that Jesus brings forth, is this is the core of what matters, okay? For those that are in Cornerstone, it's not about, as Stacy says all the time, it's not about Cornerstone's name. It's not about the elders here's name. It is about the name of Jesus. And it's not about our agenda. It's about the kingdom's agenda. And this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. You see then verse 12 that we have a very great responsibility, but it's a privilege to be salt, okay, and light. But if we don't do that, we're worthless. We're worthless. So we'll pick it up in verse 17. Jesus is speaking, just coming off of demonstrating that it's all about the glory of God versus self-glory, and we're going to see this. Glory of God versus self-glory. And he comes 
Jesus comes to these people and he says, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, who relaxes one of these, uh, of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So Jesus is saying here that he has not come to poo-poo on the law, trash the law to get rid of it. He fulfills everything that the law was about, okay? Most, most of us in here probably have a very negative view of Old Testament law, but it was a good thing. God gave it to the people. It was a beautiful thing. It was how you entered into covenant relationship with God and, and all its details and all its glory. But when Jesus comes onto the scene, he says everything that the law is about I'm fulfilling. It's about me now, okay? And so he takes six core examples of life in society, life in the world as a follower of Jesus, and he, he ups the ante. He gets to what really matters, the core of the issue, the heart of the issue, and he gets to what really matters as a life of a follower of Jesus. And so you see that you have Two triads, two groups of three examples where Christ fulfills the law through a higher righteousness. Okay, verse 21, you, he talks about the law says this, about murder. But Jesus goes to the core of the issue of murder, and he addresses the heart in anger. So it's just not a sin to, ang- to, to murder somebody. It's a sin to be angry with one another. And so he gives examples, positive and negative, of how to conduct yourself in this time. You see adultery in verse 27. We all know this passage very well, right? But the core of the issue isn't adultery in Jesus' mind. The core of the issue, the hard issue, is lust. And so Jesus ups the ante. He heightens the stakes. This is what higher righteousness is about. This is what life of a disciple is about. Just because you don't sleep with your neighbor's wife, that is not the point. Your heart can still be far away. It says it in divorce, verse 31. You see that it's in vows, oaths, verse 33. Jesus isn't, isn't saying you can't make a promise. Jesus isn't saying you can't swear. Jesus is saying just to keep your word. If you do it, keep your word. So he amplifies all of these markers, examples of what it means, what true followers of Jesus look like, how they're demonstrated in everyday life. You see this in retaliation, retribution in verse 38. I like to call this passage the, uh, where Jesus promotes nudity for hyperbole, Right? You see, look in the passage of verse 40. He says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, that is your inner garment, next to your skin, let him have your cloak, your outer garment as well. And so Jesus takes this principle and uses humor to say, it's not enough to just give them that if they take it. Give them everything. Give them everything. And so in a sense, Jesus is like, if so be it, be naked for a bit. 
Give it to your brother. And so you just see these, these radical, just here's the law, and Jesus, Jesus just takes it over here and gets to, this is really what matters. This is really what matters. This is what the intent of the law was about. We see this most sharply in verse 43. Chapter 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do you not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You got to understand the context in Jesus' day. He's talking to religious people. He's talking to people who thought they had everything together spiritually. Uh Uh-uh, it's not enough, he says. It's not enough. You got to be perfect as your father is perfect. And so you may be sitting there today being like, that's freaking impossible. Like, how can I do that? I can barely get through a day in a sanctifying manner. For those of you that have three kids under the age of three, like I do, sanctification is like a 24-7 constant in your face. Like, you know what I'm saying, right? And so we must not grow discouraged over this passage because how do we become perfect before a heavenly and holy father how do we by our own righteousness by our own pulling up of our bootstraps and just getting it done by the perfect work of jesus in jesus we are perfect before the father be holy for i am holy And so we see these passages like verse 48, and sometimes it can be discouraging, but I want to encourage you that it's not meant to be discouraging. It's meant to push you back to the one who gives you life, abundant life. Matthew 5 through 7 is not intended to be to force God's moral ethic and divine prerogative on a world that is unprepared for it many conservative Christians in, in, in America do, okay? That's not the point. This is for the followers of Jesus, not the world. This is God's kingdom ethic, not the world's agenda. So those that associate with Jesus, we are the ones who bear the force of this kingdom ethic. We are the ones that bear the force of this message. So as tasteless salt is worthless, And to be trashed and trodden under the feet of men and a hidden light is absolutely useless, so too is a disciple who lacks genuine commitment. So as we move forward as as a church, as we talk about church growth, as we talk about city parish models, as we talk about multi-site campuses, whatever, I don't want to lose, fact, lose sight of the fact of what really matters, okay? 
Let's not do that as a church. If we're not being a witness to this world and we don't have others coming to ask us about the hope that was, is within us, if the good news does not look like good news to the world, then we, we need to reevaluate. And I face that every day in my life. I'm like, why does my life not look any different? And so this is a, a time to, as a family, to just work through these things and make sure that we're staying on course in what really matters. That it's the kingdom life that Jesus is on the throne, ruling and reigning. And all this other religiosity stuff that we have put up doesn't matter. What matters is the core of our hearts. What matters is the spirit working in our lives as sons and daughters and changing us into the image. Changing us into the image of his son. So Jesus expects his followers to comply with this teaching fully. Not in a legalistic or ascetic way, and he'll condemn that even later, but as signs of God's kingdom, okay? We're going to do this imperfectly, but we should see signs of life in people that follow Jesus. We should be seeing signs of Matthew 5 and 7 in disciples and followers and Christians today. So these signs express submission to God's rule and reign are to be included and dominate the lives of his followers. However, these kingdom demands must be read in light of God's grace, as I said. They are not to be understood as an entrance into the kingdom or entrance into fellowship. Rather, they are character principles received in regeneration and carried out and developed in discipleship through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Read in light of the Read in this light, the kingdom message transforms those who meekly embrace it. You embrace this message as difficult, with all its difficulties, with all its power, with all its grandeur, and it will transform your life. You do it in a manner of humility and meekness, as we see, as we saw in the first part of the chapter, and it will transform you. But just as it transforms people who embrace it, it will crush. It will crush those who are arrogant the religiously and socially elite, socially satisfied, you have no need for God. Our ability to influence others will only, for the kingdom, will only come through the Spirit's power. To behave, to listen, to speak, to love, and to live biblically and sacrilegiously. I use the term sacrilegious as, as, as Hugh Halter uses it in his book, uh, Sac titled Sacrilege, he states this, Sacrilege is about removing religion from our faith. It's about securing the integrity of what is most important. It is about chipping away at people's false assumptions about who Jesus is and what following him is all about. Just as I said in the beginning, it's not about a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's about posturing our lives before God knowing that he, he's in control. Do we believe that? He's in control. Let's pick up in, in chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Beware of that, okay? 
Don't pursue the egotistical bug, buzz that you get when you do things in front, right, self-righteous things in front of other people, he's saying. Why? For then you will have no reward from your father, kids, from our father who is in heaven. Give to the needy, saying when you, when you give to the poor, verse 4, you, or verse 3, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Why? So that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees you in secret will reward you. The audience of one, it doesn't matter. Just do it for your father and no one else. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, right? Verse five, don't be like them. But six, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Close everyone else out, else out except for you and the father and pray to him. Pray to your father in secret. Why? Because he sees you in secret. God knows, your father knows. Don't pray like the Gentiles do. Verse eight, don't be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. People of God, do we believe that? Do I believe that? Do I believe that God knows? God knows my needs before I ask him. Some of you may be thinking, well then why the heck ask him? Because it, it puts your life, it demonstrates that your life is a life of humble posture, of dependence, of a need for someone greater, just like a, fa- a child in the, in, the, in the first century Judaism. His father was everything to him. Everything. Your identity, your life, your provision, your care, your protection. And too often, I know in my life, I don't view God as that way. Like I, don't, I don't need him like that. I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay today. And then I just miserably fail and I come blubbering back to him like a bumbling fool and a complete idiot. But yet God's there time and time again, welcoming me home. And so we see that in giving to the poor and prayer and fasting, verse 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees you in secret will reward you the promise of a reward the promise that God's got everything under control and that you win in the end. Those times that you're tempted to sin, right? You think that you're gonna get ahead, but Jesus promises that in the end, you will win. So we see that in giving to the poor in prayer and fasting. We see that, we see it in materialism. Verse 19, or verse 20, but lay for yourselves treasures in heaven, Okay. God's kingdom ethic is about the eternal, not the superficial and temporary. And anxiety, anxiety in your possessions, your food, what you drink, what you wear. He says, don't worry about that. Why? Verse 33, and your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. He knows that. Popular verse in verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So you see this over and over again that God is all powerful, all loving, all caring, all providing for your basic needs. What we really need to define as God's kids is. What do we really need? 
What is the need? Or what is a want? And that requires discernment. You see that in judging others, materialism, anxiety, judging others. Jesus talks about all of these things. He says that uh, Jesus' incarnation did not just happen so that we could pray a salvation prayer, go to church, and be content to live a semi-religious life. Do you believe that? (laughs) Jesus didn't come to this earth to be a man, take on the form of human flesh, just so that we could be content to call ourselves a Christian, but nothing else changes. We still pursue the same pursuits. We still do the same things, enjoy the same things, but we don't, we're not different. Do you know, Jesus took on flesh so that we could live life. Not just life, but abundant life, transformational life. And we always must remember that the incarnational life, incarnational life on mission isn't just about you helping others, okay? Jesus isn't interested in converts. You see this in Mark when, 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 when Stacy was talking about the crowds, right? If Jesus wanted a mass following, he could have had it. But he turns the crowds away. He turns them away all the time. And he focuses his time on 12 ordinary, simple-minded men to transform his kingdom, to live in incarnational lives. And so Jesus isn't interested in about filling pews, making converts, just having, you know, a stacked parishioner roll call. No, Jesus wants you. He wants you as, as his kid. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Like Jesus wants you as his son and as his daughter so that you can cry out to him and call him father. Like we must not forget that. We must not forget that. It's far too easy to miss Jesus and other human beings around us amidst all the individualistic, consumeristic, churchianity, okay? It's too easy to miss Jesus amidst all this stuff. All of these things that we talk about here at Cornerstone are great. They are good, but we cannot forget about what really matters. He wanted people to become like him, sacrilegious, incarnational people who lived a contagiously countercultural, kingdom-centered life. We pick it up in verse 7 of chapter 7. God's good gifts are guaranteed. If you need some good alliteration, there's some four G's to take you home this afternoon, right? His, goods, his good gifts are guaranteed. Promises them. Ask. Just ask me. Verse 11, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? Right? Gentry's on this huge kick right now. My three-year-old son is on this huge kick of probably 25 times a day asking me for a piece of gum. Don't know, the, you know how that all started or whatnot, but seriously, 20 to 25 times a day, I get, Daddy, can I have a piece of gum? Daddy, can I have a piece of gum? Daddy, can I have a piece of gum? Right? Sometimes we give it to him, sometimes we don't, but... That's because as the father, I know what he needs. (laughs) And 99.9% of the time, he doesn't need a piece of gum. Because I end up finding it on the wall, on the bed, you know. But just, (laughs) your heavenly father, he knows what we need. Do we believe that? 
But notice in chapter 7, there's three very sobering, sobering warnings that the Father, even though he guarantees that he will provide followers of Jesus, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus today, there's three very sobering, sobering warnings. Number one, Jesus says the kingdom life, his way, it ain't easy. And you're going to be in the minority. Kingdom life is not easy, and you're going to be in the minority. Look at verse 13, 14. For the gate is narrow, the way is hard, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Proof. Jesus isn't interested in the crowds. Jesus isn't interested in filling church pews. Jesus is interested in disciples who give their lives to him. Number two, second very sobering warning, probably, as David Platt says, the most daunting passage in all of Scripture, Matthew 7. Uh, Sorry, that's the next one. I lied. Jesus' way is messy, number two. Kingdom life is messy, and you'll need spirit discernment. It's messy. You're going to have people that say that they are, they aren't. Beware of false prophets, verse 15. Sheets clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, right? How do you know? How do you know? By their fruit. It's what they produce. Okay? That takes discernment. It takes love. It takes gentleness. It takes the Spirit's work in your life to be able to navigate through this. It's messy. And you'll need Spirit-led discernment. Number three, this is the most daunting passage of all of Scripture. That Jesus, Jesus' way, kingdom life, is not trifling. It's not trifling. And to not follow it, to not follow Jesus' kingdom ethic is ultimately damning. I don't know about you, but for me, as a believer who was raised in a Christian home and had the privilege of all of that, I went to Bible college, even went to seminary. Like, that scares the crap out of me. Because you can do all of these things and it doesn't matter. Like you can still miss the point, Jesus is saying. You can still miss the point. Lord, Lord, have we not done all these things? And he's like, get out of here. I don't even know who you are. But I called you dad. Like you're my dad. He's like, no, no, you're not. I'm not. You're not my son. Like that's, that's some serious stuff. So he he comes, he ends, he says this, verse 24, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, you hear them and you do them, will be like a wise man who builds his house upon a rock. And when the storms come, the, the, the trash of life, the difficulties, the grief, the pain that you experience in this life, when it comes, the winds blow and beat on the house, it won't fall because it was founded on the rock that doesn't move but if you hear these words and do not do them you're like a foolish man builds his house on the sand when the storms of life come when the hardships squeezing the pressure increases in life you will fall because you will find out what really matters in life. 
talked about this a little bit last week, but in my line of work, I'm around death and dying on a daily basis. Just, you can call me the Grim Reaper or whatever. It's just, an, it's, I'm around it. I see it all the time. I experience it. I help people move through the processes of grief. And consistently, time and time again, you find out in death and in extreme anguish and trauma, nothing else matters. Except for family. People. People forget about their jobs. They forget about their pets. They forget about everything else, and it stops. You're just in this, 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 this frozen time mode. And you lose, family, my families lose complete track of time. And it just doesn't matter. Everything else that they thought mattered doesn't anymore. And this, is the, this is what Jesus is trying to get us back to. This is what matters. And when Jesus finished, verse 28, these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For his teaching was, was one who had authority not as a scribe. So for those of you that missed last week's core training, we were talking about gospel fluency. And we talked about that it's not just enough to know God's words. It's not. We must obey them. We must follow them. We must pursue them. It's not enough to know about God. There's an eternal difference of knowing about God and knowing God. And we can't miss that difference. Don't get discouraged today. I hope you felt my heartbeat, my desire, my passion for me, for you, for us as a church family, is that we would not get bogged down in the do's and don'ts. But these examples right here, if we see them in our lives, then we're getting pretty close. We must be doing something right. But as soon as these core issues right here, the heart issues are devoid in Cornerstone or devoid in the American church, we better reevaluate. It's time to reevaluate. So these, there's these warnings. But your father loves you and he's got an incredible plan for you. So run to him, embrace the gospel, run to the loving arms of your father and rest in his arms. For those of us that grew up in religious settings and we've been around religious people and we've just immersed ourselves in a religious context and I'm at the front of the line, be careful, do not, me, do not walk in an arrogant manner in your lifestyle as if we have no need of God. And everything's okay spiritually, thinking all that is well. Don't settle, let's not settle today. Let's not settle 2014 for the status quo. Let's not. Let's turn to Jesus, Savior, and in him we'll find and we'll know the Father. We can call out to him as his kids. So let's, let's all stand and read Psalm 103 together, okay? We're going to put it up, Psalm 103. Let's read this together as a church, that we would pursue the kingdom, that we would seek after righteousness, that we would be serious about what God is serious about, because this is what matters. And so the psalmist writes this in an Old Testament context, and he still finds that his father, his God, is good, and because he is good, he can say these things. So let's read Psalm 103, 1 through 14 together. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. 
who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear his name. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Chris, would you come up and close us? 